Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlyle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say Code War. We say Code Pink. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say Code War. We say Code Pink. Code Pink for freedom. Code Pink for peace. Code Pink to hunger. Was not Iraq, but Iran. They feed you lies, don't want you to think. They say code terror, we say code pink. They feed you lies, don't want you to think. They say code terror, we say code pink. Code pink, freedom, code pink. Good morning. This is Code Pink Radio broadcasting live from WPFW Washington, D.C. and WBAI New York City. Uh, This is Terry Matson from the Latin American Department of Code Pink joining um, Ariel Gold this morning from our Middle East, Palestine, Iran, multiple departments um, (laughs) on that side of the globe. So Uh, happy to be here. It's great to be doing this together this morning. Absolutely. So we are going to be co-hosting this morning, principally focusing on Palestine. And Jewish activism for freedom and liberation, really, from the U.S.-Mexico border and, like you said, Palestine. Across the world, we'll be looking at how U.S. foreign policy is. Um, Basically the same paradigm on every continent at the moment. (laughs) And what people are doing to change that. And it's very exciting. And so you have a friend of yours joining you this morning, Caroline Karsher. Did I say that correct? Karsher. Karsher. She's the author of Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism. But I think first, do we have a few news announcements? We do. And I guess the first thing we should probably be um, talking about is the passing of Elijah Cummings, from uh, U.S. representative from Maryland this morning, a big... A big, sad piece of news to wake up to this morning, and he will be sorely, sorely missed for his politics, his activism, his how he lived his life. A real so, champion for civil rights and... Uh, for everyone. For everyone. Yeah, and, and, as a voice uh, for everyone. Yeah. So uh, in other news, I want to mention that uh, part of our one of the campaigns that we run is to boycott Saudi Arabia. And this campaign was inspired by the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement to uh, achieve freedom for Palestinians. So in the in the Saudi boycott campaign, there is an upcoming uh, big, big festival that Saudi Arabia is hosting. And the purpose of this festival is to whitewash their 
war crimes and human rights abuses. And scheduled to perform was the musician Rod Stewart. But we looked the other day and his name has disappeared from the roster. So if you want to send Rod Stewart a tweet and tell him thank you for boycotting Saudi Arabia. Has he made a statement or did he just quietly disappear from the So list? far quietly, but we've been trying to reach out to him. He deserves a big thank you. A Twitter storm to thank him. Absolutely. <laughs> so what else is happening in the news? Ariel's actually getting ready to leave for Iran tomorrow morning. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So Code Pink is leading a peace delegation to Iran. This is the second uh, peace delegation to Iran that we've led this year, and I will be on that trip, and you can go to our website, codepink.org, to follow the trip. We will have daily blogs. That's great. And how long is the trip? You leave tomorrow? and I leave tomorrow. I have a long arrival there. You're a long flight there, and I will get back on the 27th. Oh, terrific. Well, it'll be interesting to um, watch. Now, that's not the only trip we have coming up. Well, that's true. We have another trip coming up in December. And for those of you who, like me, are freezing today here in Washington, D.C., we have a terrific delegation headed for the Caribbean in December. We'll be going to Cuba on a people-to-people delegation, and we will be focused on the uh, anniversary of the Obama reopening of diplomatic relations with Cuba in December of 2014. And unfortunately, that that diplomacy has pretty much been diluted under the current presidential administration. And so we are going to raise attention um, as to the need to reinstate the policies that President Obama had attempted to um, open up and uh, celebrate the people of Cuba and try to better understand uh, the effects of the Cuba embargo and how they've been exacerbated and expanded under the current administration. And we'll have some nice warm Caribbean weather in the middle of December. So. Where can folks learn more about that trip? You can go to codepink.org front slash Cuba or just codepink.org. In activist news, I have a few things to mention. So we're in the midst of a series of Jewish holidays right now, the holiday of Sukkot. And uh, yesterday, in front of the New York City ADL, that's Anti-Defamation League office, uh, Jewish Voice for Peace, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, and so many allies, um, including activist Linda Sarsour and so many others, gathered outside the ADL's office to demand that the ADL stop uh, training, stop assisting U.S. police forces to train in Israel. We may talk about uh, the JVP campaign a little bit more with uh, Carolyn Karcher because she's involved in that. It's called the Deadly Exchange Campaign. So they built a people's sukkah, which sukkah is a a building where Jews celebrate the harvest during this time of year. It's a a structure, not a building, outdoors. And uh, they built a people's, people's sukkah to say that safety for Jews comes through solidarity with other groups who are oppressed, um, such as our Muslim community, uh, people of color, the immigrant community, and so on. They weren't the only people building uh, solidarity sukkahs for um, 
freedom and equality and to end uh, some of the horrible things happening in the world. Never Again Action, which seeks to uh, close the ICE detention camps, took actions uh, for the holiday of Sukkot in Texas, in California, in Maryland. They uh, shut down ICE detention centers and uh, occupied state houses, and they're continuing to do that through this week. And during the second half of the hour, we'll be talking about Never Again Action with one of its founders, the incredible Abby Stein. This is all very exciting, and I think this is really good, positive, um, civil rights, um, environmental, you know, ranges over a whole lot of um, activism, and it's really wonderful to see the Jewish community so active on on this, because here in the States, so much of our government and foreign policy is controlled by a different aspect of politics, and uh, so this is some really great movement building. Yeah, and, and it's and, really and it's, wonderful. I'm always curious to learn, I think so many of us are, how people get there, how yeah. people become activists, how people become transformed to uh, be human rights defenders. And so with that, I want to bring Caroline into the conversation. Now, Caroline, you are the editor of a new book that's out called Reclaiming uh, Judaism from Zionism. I'm one of the contributors to this book. And I was wondering if you could begin by telling us uh, what the book is about and what inspired you to uh, undertake this. Thank you, Ariel. Yes, um, the, the the book is about how the um, the increasing numbers of Jews who are realizing that Zionism, which I define as um, the the need for a Jewish state in order to escape persecution, um, the the number of Jews who are realizing that this is in fact not part of Judaism, and that uh, that. Zionist ideology has, in fact, degraded the Jewish religion. That um, Jewish religious ethics are based on pursuing justice, on loving your neighbor, on loving the stranger, on not your neighbor but the stranger, and on repairing the world. And uh, none of these ethical principles are followed by the Israelis in their conduct in Palestine. So increasing numbers of Jews who are, are recognizing this and are grappling with it and realizing that they must renounce Zionism. I wanted to collect their stories because I feel that personal stories are the best way, really, of changing hearts and minds. And uh, my target audience was other Jews who are beginning to feel uncomfortable with the Israel-centric view of Judaism, are recognizing that, that Israel is committing war crimes in the name of the Jewish people and in the name of keeping the Jewish people safe. But um, because Israel has become such a pillar of Jewish identity, are having trouble really breaking with this. So I wanted I wanted the book to inspire them by introducing them to 40 Jewish voices talking about how each of them changed and abandoned uh, Zionism. I begin the book with the voices of rabbis because I felt that 
that those are the voices that many Jews will consider the most authoritative, although that shouldn't necessarily be so. And um, so I, I have uh, three rabbis at the beginning of the book, and Rabbi Alyssa Wise, who is also the deputy director of Jewish Voice for Peace at the end of the book, and uh, all of them explain in different ways their uh, their attempts. Well, both um, they're they're grappling with recognizing that that Zionism was harmful to their Jewish religious beliefs, and then their attempts to to reconstruct. Judaism on a different foundation, going back to the ethical principles that were always at the heart of Judaism and that have been betrayed and um, and uh, violated by Zionism. Now you start the book out with an incredible foreword that is uh, written by you, or introduction, and within that you explain some of the history of Zionism, which I found so fascinating um, as I read it. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners just a little bit about uh, what is, uh, how did Zionism come to be uh, so commonplace? Sure. Um, well, the important thing to remember is that at the very be- at the beginning, and it actually through. Uh, through World War II, um, Zionism was a minority movement. That um, so, what what was Zionism? It began with uh, the, well, it began a little actually a little earlier than Theodore Herzl, although he is considered the founder of Zionism. Uh, it began in the 1880s with Russian Jews during the pogroms wanting to escape. Um, most Russian Jews who wanted to escape the pogroms came to the U.S., um, but a handful of them thought of going to Palestine and um, going to what they saw as the, the homeland of the ancient Israelite people, and um, th- th- that would be a way of escaping. Um, but the idea didn't really take hold until Theodore Herzl uh, wrote um, his uh his uh, short but um, very interesting uh, tract um, on on Zionism. So um, Herzl was actually a, a secular um, Viennese Jew who had relatively little contact with Judaism or the, the uh, Jewish community. Um, he uh, was a journalist. He um, was in France when... Um, France, which was considered to be sort of the Mecca, the, the most um, uh, emancipated country in, in Europe for the Jews, um, erupted in vicious anti-Semitic um, riots. Uh, uh, they were um, caused by and intertwined with um, the, the fact that, that uh, France had lost the um, Franco-Prussian War, um, so with with um, anti-German feeling, and uh, they um, were focused on this uh, Jewish uh, officer, um, Alfred Dreyfus, or Alfred Dreyfus, as Americans pronounce it, who um, was Alsatian. Um, uh, that is, he came from uh, the, the provinces in eastern France that um, had a, a dialect, um, an Alsatian dialect that was actually a, a dialect of German. And this, uh, these provinces were 
uh, conquered by Prussia, reconquered by Prussia in the, the Franco-Prussian War. And he and his family uh, emigrated to what the Alsatians call the interior of France. So he was in Paris. He, he be- became an army officer. And um, he was accused on uh, very, very flimsy evidence um, that was actually called into question multiple times um, of treason. And uh, so it was, it was sort of a way for um, uh, the French both to express their anti-Semitism, but also their sense of a betrayal at having lost the war. Um, you know how easily such, such feelings um, occur. And uh, so he was um, sentenced and uh, found guilty and condemned of treason and um, sent to Devil's Island. Um, and uh, then the uh, famous French writer Émile Zola uh, intervened um, with uh, a pamphlet called J'accuse, I Accuse, uh, defending him. And uh, the French um, masses erupted uh, against Zola, against Dreyfus um, in these riots that took place in cities all over France um, and that lasted for days and days. And uh, Herzl, who had just come to France thinking that it would be, you know, the, um, the emancipated country was shocked. And he concluded that uh, the only way Jews could be safe was by leaving um, Europe and by founding a country of their own. Uh, this was, of course, the period of high nationalism, and it was also the period of imperialism. And so Herzl conceptualized the idea of the Jewish state um, in uh, terms that... Um, that drew on these two ideologies. Um, And uh, he very clearly indicated that in order to establish a Jewish state, they would, um, the Jews would need to, uh, they would need help from the imperial powers. So um, the imperialist content of Zionism was there from the beginning. Um, And he he used colonialist rhetoric because, um, again, you know, this was when France was colonizing Algeria. This was when the British were colonizing India. I mean, all European countries aspired to and most had colonies. So this this was normal for him. So um, 1896, he publishes The Jewish State. 1897, he calls the first um, Zionist Congress, uh, which met in uh, Basel, uh, Switzerland. And... Um, those began to be annual meetings uh, there. Uh, Again, this was a a minority movement at the time. Uh, All uh, Jewish rabbis uh, from uh, every end of the the spectrum, the ultra-Orthodox to to reform leaders, denounced Zionism and found it um, anti-Jewish. And and, uh, the Jewish masses, for the most part, were very uninterested. And uh, again, for them... Uh, the best way of uh, freeing themselves was going to America. Um, so, Can I have to say, there's a couple things that I just heard from you that I find fascinating. And three words, actually, that you just said. And I appreciate you giving us this history because so many of us in the States do not understand where this whole Zionist movement and concept came from and that it came long before World War II. But you you mentioned three words, nationalism, imperialism, and colonialist rhetoric. 
from like the 1880s up until, until World War One or in between the two wars. And I would say... Or till today. <laughs> I was, exactly. I was just going to say we're kind today. of hearing all of that all over again, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Now, yeah. since the, the state was founded in 1948 and, and uh, as... Uh, I, I, I'm aware that in between, after the Second World World War and after the Holocaust, is when Zionism finally gained popularity. But uh, since 1948, so many American Jews have traveled to Israel, and uh, their relationship—they feel so much that Israel represents Jewishness. Um, and I noticed that I noticed yesterday that today uh, in Israel or in Israel right now is a far right Jewish political commentator Ben Shapiro for anybody who's familiar with um, that that figure who has inspired so many uh, white nationalists and uh, some some shooters as well uh, and he was in uh, the West Bank city of Hebron though only with the Jewish community there Hebron is an entirely uh, segregated apartheid city now what that brought to mind for me and I, I tweeted immediately at him you know, Ben Shapiro, did you uh, walk through the checkpoints? Did you uh, walk down the roads and see the, the roads that are divided in half, one side for Israelis and one side for Palestinians? One side for Jews and everybody who is not Muslim or Palestinian. On the other side, I mean, just pure, pure apartheid. And of course, I know, I know he didn't. And the reality is, is that so many Jews since, so many American Jews since 1948, who have gone to uh, visit Israel, never see what's behind the apartheid wall, never see the checkpoints, the closed restrictions, the tear gas being shot at children. And, um, I have a whole section of your book, which is the section where that I contributed to, is about transformative uh, experiences. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yes. Um, so the, that whole section is people who, in fact, decided to go and see what was behind the apartheid wall. And, uh, you know, if only that could be made a much more common experience I, I do believe that the American Jewish community, which on the whole is a very liberal community, would shift very rapidly. So um, I would hope so, because the Jewish community here in the States was so active during the civil rights movement and aligned itself and, and, and coalesced itself around so much of, of the African-American movement in the southern states here in the U.S. And I bring that in because, you know, specifically because we lost a great Amer black African-American um, activist today. And, even and the Jewish community was so intertwined. Well, with that. even back then, through the civil rights movement and through today, there has been a real disconnect in the Jewish community between um, activism for immigrant rights, activism um, against uh, uh, anti-blackness and during, you know, for civil rights and blind support for Israel. Yes. And in fact, one of my contributors, not in this section, but in another section called um, uh, progressive, uh, progressive Values versus Zionism, Hasya Diner, who is a great uh, Jewish American historian and has published a list of books longer than my arms. Um, she, she talks about how involved she was in the civil rights movement and how uh, her father was an ardent Zionist and also an ardent member of the NAACP back in the 1950s. Uh, um, 
and uh, and an you know ardent supporter of African American rights, and how um, she was completely unaware of the way Palestinians were being treated at the very same time that she was demonstrating for equal rights for African Americans and for the immigrant workers who were picking blueberries on the farms near the um, the summer camps where she and her Zionist friends went. Um, so it, it is uh, the, the support for Israel depends very much on keeping people blind uh, to to the to the realities, and um, getting back to your question about the transformative experiences in Israel Palestine, so um, several of the of uh, the contributors to that section, um, including me and including you, Carol did. And, and I met for the first time and have been fast friends ever since. Uh, on a delegation, which was the first time I ever visited Palestine. Yes, she was there as well. So. Um, we, we we did visit Hebron, and um, the the Israeli group uh, breaking the silence. In fact, a group of, of, of Israeli soldiers who served in the occupied territories and and want to show the Israeli public what it's like. Uh, breaking the silence takes regular tours of people to the territories to show them, and they call um, Hebron the epicenter of the occupation. It. Uh, the occupation is so is so blatant in Hebron that when you see it, um, you're transformed immediately. Um, what, I mean, one of the things that uh, struck me was we, of course, visited the market, and the market has a netting uh, over the top uh, uh, to protect the. Uh, um, the the customers, Palestinians, and, the and, and international visitors, yes, and the merchants um, from the settlers who live above it and who throw down feces, um, urine, urine um, uh, garbage, uh, gl- garbage, uh, gl- glass, uh, bottles, bricks. You know, so you know, this is just such a uh, an important thing that you're sharing with us because it really is not anything that we really in mass overtly discuss here in the United States. And yes. Israel works very hard to try to prevent people from seeing it, including denying entry to many people. I myself am, am now banned from going there. And uh, the reason they deny entry to people is they don't want people to know. Yes, yes. And these are the, these settlers are, you know, ultra-fanatic religious people. And they do this in the name of Judaism. And they throw these things on Shabbat, when you're supposed to not work and be praying. Um, so th- they've turned a religion that is supposed to be about loving the stranger into a religion of hate. And, you know, that's what I mean by needing to renounce Zionism, because this is what Zionism foments. And Ben Shapiro, if somehow you're listening or you later see this clip on Twitter, please go back, take a tour of Hebron with the Palestinian activists who provide tours, with Breaking the Silence. Take a look at uh, this situation. Walk below this netting and, and see what's above. Walk through these checkpoints. So we have a few more minutes before we go uh, to our break. And maybe, Caroline, you could 
give us a, another quick plug for your book. I was so just going to say, um, tell, tell our listeners know where to find it, where they can pick it up. And as well, I know you have some talks coming up across the on the other side of the country. And in case somebody is listening online from one of those areas, you could uh, let our listeners know. Well, where you'll be. let me begin with Washington, since I hope um, a lot of people from Washington are listening. Uh, we are having a book talk at um, Middle East Books and More, which is a little north of DuPont Circle, on October 30th um, from 6 to 8 p.m. And I will um, try to be there. I'll be just back from Iran, and wonderful. I should be able to be there. Wonderful. So um, what I try to do with these book talks, I don't consider this my book. I consider this our book. Um, because I, I really do believe that the the stories of my contributors are the most powerful and important part of the book. So uh, all of the local contributors, um, uh, there'll be, f- uh, I think, five of them uh, will be presenting uh, at the Middle East bookstores, and I will be giving this overview and uh, in, in talking um, from the introduction about the origins of, of Zionist ideology um, there. Uh, and what is the date and time again? That is October 30th, okay. um, 6 to 8 p.m., Middle East Books and More, um, uh, right uh, a little north of DuPont Circle. Terrific. And where else in Washington, D.C.? Sounds like you have another venue. Um, or perhaps in New York City, since I we have listeners in, up there uh, as well. Bay Area yeah. of California. Yes. Ah. Um, well, the other, uh, the other imminent um, uh, one is uh, at a little bookstore in San Francisco called Green Arcade. Oh, fantastic. And, San Francisco, where I'm from originally. Oh, great. <laughs> so uh, that one will be on October 28th um, from 7 to 9 at Green Arcade. Uh, I'm, there, there's also going to be a book talk at Stanford University, but I, I would think that the, the bookstore in San Francisco would be easier for uh, most people to get to. Um, churches in the Washington area have expressed a lot of interest in having us speak to them, and I know that um, that uh, there's there's going to be um, at least one um, organized one book talk at uh, churches in the Northern Virginia area in mid January. Is there a website where people can see these, or a Facebook page can see these upcoming talks? And where can people pick up the book before we close this out? Yes, well, copies of the book are available at various busboys and poets locations in Washington. I'm told that even Politics and Prose is now carrying it because so many people requested it there. Uh, Of course, it can be uh, ordered directly from the publisher um, or... Uh, from Barnes and Noble or um, from Indie Books or from Amazon. And um, uh, a Facebook page or something ha- where people can see a, upcoming we events? A, we do have a Facebook page and we also have um, a, a website, uh, Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism.org. Or no, dot com, sorry. Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, all one word, dot com. We will link to that on Twitter. Our Twitter account, for anybody who doesn't know, is at Code Pink. If you don't follow us already, please do so now, and we'll provide those links. Thank you so much, Caroline. So appreciated to have this conversation this morning. It's a conversation that we don't um, have enough throughout the United States. I so appreciate you coming and joining us this morning. Well, thank you for inviting me. I admire Code Pink tremendously. And it's a great honor to be invited. Well, so we're going to, that part of the conversation was about uh, 
transformation. And uh, we're going to talk to somebody who is going to talk about um, what this activism looks like in action. So after we uh, overcome Zionism as Jews, what what does it look like to get involved? Okay, and we'll be back in a few minutes to have that conversation.
Hi, we're back with Code Pink Radio, and you were just listening to the Shondis. Our next caller can tell me if I pronounced that wrong. Our next guest. Uh, they oh, are a uh, Jewish uh, women's uh, band that sings about um, political and uh, Jewish life. That was uh, Nights Like This by the Shondis. And you're listening to WPFW, Washington, D.C., and WBAI, New York City. This is Code Pink Radio Live from New York and Washington, D.C. This is your, uh, these are your co-hosts, Terry Matson and Ariel Gold from Code Pink here in the D.C. chapter. Great. And I'd like to welcome our next guest. We're talking today uh, about Jewish activism. And we have with us now Abby Stein. Welcome, Abby. Hi, welcome. Thanks for having me. And you pronounced it almost correctly. It's more <laughs> like Shandas, but you got it great. And also, I just want to say, Moadim Lesimcha, or we would say in Yiddish, I get annoyed. Happy holidays. Happy. Um, and for those who are on. on tuning in, I might not know, today is the four days of the coast. It's the seven-day holiday. Wonderful. Happy holidays. Good yonduf to you, Abby. <laughs> Thanks. And uh, we were talking about it the, at the beginning of the show. We mentioned that uh, there's a lot of activism going on in the Jewish community for uh, Sukkot, including activism from Never Again Action, which you are a big part of, uh, one of the founders of that organization. Um, Yes, please. Can I just please. correct you there a bit? Um, I just, just to make sure everyone knows, um, I'm not here speaking in any like formal role. I was involved with Never Again Action from the beginning with actions and everything, but I do not have a leadership role on that, which I think is important to point out. I have done a lot of leadership roles and actions, but that was mostly for me coming to JFES, Youth Racial and Economic Justice. So just wanted to make sure that is out there. And also that what I'm saying are mostly my own opinions and not necessarily something that everyone might agree with. I think most of them will agree with most of the things, but just wanted to make sure everything is clear. Thank you, Abby, for that clarification and welcome to our program this morning. I wonder Thanks. if you could take a, a quick moment and just maybe we could describe what is never some again of you. Action? Yes. <laughs> well, who are, what is this group of people and, and what, are, what are you doing? Why did you get involved sure. with them? Sure. Um, so to me personally, and I know I assume you were going to get to that later about what it means to me personally, but it's actually very interesting because I did watch kind of the group forum almost uh, overnight. I don't like it didn't actually form overnight. It was a long process and a lot of the actions of the current administration and of what I would call a terrorist organization called ICE um, have been doing. Um, Absolutely. A terrorist yeah. organization, ICE. I, I don't know, some people will hate me for it, but I really believe that some of the acts that they have been doing have intentionally been meant to invoke terror and to terrorize immigrant, immigrant communities. And Never Again Action was kind of the culmination of, like, after two years, people were really getting fed up. And I watched it happening as, of like, the group unfold. I will say one of my uh, claims to fame with the group is that I believe I was one of the first, if not one of the first ten uh, Twitter accounts that they followed as an account as they started out. Um, and I was actually in Germany at the time, which um, the irony is obviously not lost on me, but it actually had a lot. The meaning of it was very strong, and I think I expressed that in a tweet a day or two after Never Again Action kind of formally launched. And 
ultimately it was a way for Jews to express a feeling that we have been feeling for the past two years. And though I think a lot of us have been feeling that even during the last administration, that a lot of the actions, and maybe not as much the specific actions as, as the rhetoric, the kind of talk that has been happening around immigrants, the kind of talks that have been happening against uh, Latino Americans, the talk that has been happening about refugees, really echo conversations that have been happening I would say between World War One and World War Two, throughout that period in different countries at different times in Europe. Against and the Jewish population. Against the Jewish population. Mm-hmm. Though also we got to remember that even then it wasn't just the Jewish population. It was the Romani population. It was the LGBT community and so on. It was and, the same in many ways. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to say no one, none of us are saying that what's happening right now in the southern border is Auschwitz just yet. But it's the, when we say never again, we're not saying, oh, we're going to wait until there's another Auschwitz and then we're going to speak up. When we say never again, we mean we're going to do everything to make sure we never get there. And we are already getting way too close. Again, both on the actions, like whatever. We, when I saw the picture of the two people who wash up on the edge of the river, that's it, the striking similarities to images that I grew up with of my uh, in my family and in my community. I grew up in a community where probably 95% of the people were Holocaust survivors and descendants of Holocaust survivors. And three of my grandparents, a total of 25 of my direct ancestors, I'm talking grandparents, great-grandparents and great-great-great-grandparents were either killed during the Holocaust or were Holocaust survivors. It meant so much. And the similarities were just striking. And it's never easy to just jump on something and be like, this is a, this is a Holocaust. And, and I want to say, thankfully, it's not there yet, but that is exactly our point. We, the rhetoric, the actions taken by and the detention people centers. in the government. The detention well, the centers. detention centers. Yes. And I'm reminded really, that uh, this is what we mean at Code Pink when we say stop the next war now and why we're working hard to uh, prevent exactly. the U.S. from going to war with Iran because never again means uh, preventing it from getting started. And exactly. never again for everyone. I have that feeling a lot when I read some of the Jewish organizations that were cringing, whatever it was when uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, who I just want to say love, and, and other people were like calling it like detention camps, concentration camps, and the whole conversation. And I saw a lot of people who were like a lot of Jewish organizations that were almost like cringing, which, to be honest, growing up, in the shadow of the Holocaust, a lot of a lot of uh, I think academics call us secondhand Holocaust survivors. So people who grew up in the community where the shadow of the Holocaust was so much there. Like my dad literally told me when I left the community that Hitler is winning. I know it's 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 an intense, but it's very much wow. going up there. And we all have none of us want to jump on it so easily. And but where is this I'll, community that you that you oh, grew up in? Yeah, let me track backtrack a bit. Yeah, this is fascinating. I, my, yes, sorry. No, 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 I, I that's great. Focus, I don't want this to be about me. I want this to be about mainly about my feelings on a global movement, but not just about me. But yes, I grew up in the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic community. Um, literally, my entire family, up to my second cousins, are all Hasidic. I come. I'm a direct descendant of the of the Baal Shem Tov, who is the founder of Hasidic Judaism. Um, and yeah, I grew up in Williamsburg in Brooklyn. I went to Hasidic schools my entire life. I'm also uh, very proudly what I call a woman of trans experience. So I did, growing up, um, being raised as a boy, I also managed to go to rabbinical school and, and, and study to become a rabbi in that community as well. 
So, um, but just to wrap oh, up, just, if I may. Uh, well, I know folks are going to want to learn more about that. And I also know sure. that you have a book that will be coming out. So if you could just briefly uh, tell us when that book will be coming out, what the name of the book is, and where people can pre-order it, as I already yes. have. Okay, yes. Yeah. So the book is called Becoming Eve, which is a play on my middle name, which is Chava, which is the Hebrew for Eve. Um, the story is mostly focused on my childhood and growing up, kind of until I started leaving the Hasidic community. The official publication date is on November 12th. It's already available for pre-orders online. I like to say, I like to tell people usually if you want to be evil, you can order it on Amazon. If you want to support uh, local organizations, there's options if you go to sealpress.com, which is the publisher. Um, and also on all of my social media, there's a link to it. You have options to buy it from IndieBound, which is a, an online kind of website that gives you the opportunity to support local booksellers and small booksellers, which is my favorite, or whichever, however you feel like pre-ordering it, it's available online. And also we're going to actually have in New York City, our big launch event is going to be at the 92nd Street Y on November 13th. And then there's going to be a lot of events across the U.S. and across the world. I can't um, wait. Yes. And I'll be going to yes. the book launch. I've already put it in my calendar. Yeah. And on our Twitter at Code Pink, we will uh, link, provide a link where people can buy this as well. Great. I will, uh, yeah. I wonder I while we're talking about your book, if I could ask, because sure. I'm, I'm more on the naive side of, okay. of, uh, I was raised in the, in the, um, Catholic Church. So, yeah. I, you know, this is really wonderful for me to be sharing in the earlier conversation with Caroline and now with you. But was there a moment, a particular moment in your life where you came to the never again? movement philosophy or has this been an evolutionary process for you or how did I, you get to where you are today okay. i find it so, fascinating and i'm i'm really it's really wonderful for me to hear what what you are sharing with us sure i think i would divide it into two parts i think there is um the, when we think about never again a big part of it is, is also mentality it's a mentality it's a worldview of looking on the world through the lens of realizing that as a society, we tend to have very short-term memory. People tend to think, oh, the, all these things that happened during World War II, uh, the Holocaust, it's so far in the bag. And then you think for a second, I was born nearly 50 years after that. I was born in a community where everyone that, that was above 60 was kind of a Holocaust survivor. I grew up listening to stories of my grandfather telling me the stories of him working in in. in concentration camps and in death camps. I grew up in the stories of my great-grandfather, who ended up being the chief rabbi of the British DP camps after, um, after the liberation. I grew up with Never Again in such a strong way. And I think from that, after I left the Hasidic community, while my, I think, worldviews have obviously evolved a lot, the approach that we have to look on atrocities that are happening around the world, from the lens of realizing that just a few decades ago, uh, government that was to some extent the legal and legitimate government, although maybe that's arguable and disputable, but a government was able to convince an entire society, and it wasn't just the society. Before the war, people saw the German society as one of the most advanced and most educated and most scientific. They would manage to not necessarily, I don't think that every German went out and started killing Jews, but the ability to convince an entire society 
that millions of people are the source of their problems, that millions of people, if just we can get rid of them, everything is going to be great. That, uh, realizing that this happened not that long ago, and then looking on during the 2016 election, we got the exact same rhetoric. I actually say sometimes that I think, I like to call him the person occupying the White House right now, I actually think he's too narcissistic to really hate someone. He only thinks about himself, but which only makes it worse because he very much realized that if he's going to scapegoat and are in the situation right now, scapegoat the immigrant community, refugee communities, communities of color, and most importantly, the Latino American community, his people are just going to go along with it. And the Muslim yes. community the Muslim. as well. And the Muslim community, When we look yes. at uh, the travel ban, and I'll be exactly. heading to uh, Iran And tomorrow. discriminating under the base of... of of the economic burden these people are creating, taking jobs, etc. Much of what we saw in Europe leading up to World War II, the people, nations suffering economically and then targeting a demographic of people to blame that on. And it seems to me we're hearing very, very similar things, particularly with the Latino immigrant community. And I understand we have a caller waiting to talk with you, Um so why don't we hear um, the comment and question? Go ahead, caller. This is Rick calling you long distance from Germany. Hi. Good morning. Hi, Hi ladies. Uh, I would just like to say that I heard your opening and your short history of the rise of Zionism, and I would say I know that you can only do so much in an hour, but I hope that when you get the chance to come at this again, you will you will point out some of the history and the Jewish involvement in the rise of communism and the rise of the hard sciences in the Western world. Well, we're talking about uh, um, the, you know, Jewish activism. And Abby, maybe you could talk about uh, a little bit of how, you know, this current rise of Jewish activism, actions at the ICE detention centers in particular, how they're linked to uh, Jewish activism throughout history. Yeah. Um, I actually, I wanted to say, like, I've been trying to coming back, kind of taking it full circle with, with the Never Again action. I'm saying a lot of the, uh, what I think were well-meaning Jewish organizations that when they were responding, I mean, some of them were not maybe well-meaning, but I think a lot were um, innocently well-meaning uh, responses to the concept of using the Holocaust. And I kept on feeling that it's as if they are saying, we can't compare anything to the Holocaust because six million people haven't been killed. And to me, that is exactly the reason why we need to speak up. Like, I'm not, I'm not ignorant. I'm very much aware that what's happening right now hasn't reached the level of atrocities during World War II. But our point has to be, and I think that is what has energized so many Jewish communities, so many Jewish people, and we got to realize that specifically in the U.S., as opposed to Jewish communities in other parts of the world, the percent of people who come from Holocaust survivors is really, really high. And we all know that and we feel it in our bones. And for us, we speak up exactly because it isn't that bad yet. When we reach to another Holocaust, we're all going to be too late. We got to speak up right now when we see the rhetoric, when we see the conversation. And I think that has been a big cause that has been leading. But to, to, to some extent, if you look on the broader picture of specifically left-wing Jewish activism, it has always been... It has always been um, anchored. It's always the, at the core of it has always been a Jewish understanding that throughout history, we have constantly been scapegoated. 
throughout history, there's a, a saying, I don't remember who it was, that whenever there is something happening, and we see that right now coming from um, specifically on the right even more, who are literally killing us in synagogues. But throughout history, whenever people, whenever a nation started hating, regardless of who it was, in our community, whatever it was, refugees or Muslims, at the end of the day, it all ends up coming back to us for some reason that I don't want to say I don't understand, but Jews always end up being the scapegoat. And throughout history, whatever we look on that, on the labor movement that was very heavily um, infused, very heavily influenced by the Jewish communities, both in Europe and in the U.S. throughout the last century, it was constantly coming from a perspective that we know that when minorities are being scapegoated, regardless of who they are, it never stops with them. It is going to get to us. We have just two minutes left, and okay. uh, Caroline is yes, still I, here. I wanted to uh, address what the caller from Germany said, um, and I'm very, very glad you brought that up. Um, indeed, uh, communists were among those who were leading the opposition to Hitler, and I do believe that uh, this goes to, in fact, support uh, Jewish Voice for Peace's um, belief that Safety lies in solidarity, and in not among all peoples, right? Uh, not enclosing yourself in your own uh, ethnic uh, ghetto and relying only on um, your uh, your own sense of persecution, but in uh, fighting for the rights of all people, as in fact communists did, uh, and allying very broadly with oppressed groups. Um, all over our society and all over the world. And fighting against the war machine. So to learn more about yeah. that, which, you know, is one of these common links, you can go to, folks can go to codepink slash divest, codepink.org slash divest, and also codepink.org slash stop Elbit, E-L-B-I-T, which is Israel's largest weapons company that is uh, providing surveillance and militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border. Thank you so much, ladies. I wonder if we could give a quick plug for Abby's book. Before Abby, we, we had two final books words to promote today. Plug so. your book. Before we have I to... Say, I would say the one sentence that I always want to say about what the book is about. I think at the end of the day, I've been trying, I try to capture a human story. I see it as a story of a girl growing up in New York City trying to find herself. And I think many people could find certain parts in the story, whether it's family life, religion, education, uh, coming into sexual selves and so on in that book. Again, the coming eve, uh, coming out on November 12th. It's available for pre-order everywhere. Um, you can check at sealpress.com on their website or on my website and social media and everywhere. There's links to it everywhere. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, everyone. And you can find us next week again, 11 a.m. Thursdays, uh, Eastern Time on WBAI and WPFW Live. Follow us on at Code Pink on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and our website, CodePink.org. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Daddy Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink.
WPFW News, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns with some brief news headlines. Maryland Representative Elijah E. Cummings, a sharecropper's son who rose to become a civil rights champion and the powerful chairman of one of the U.S. House committees, died this morning of complications from long-standing health problems. He was 68 years old. As chairman of the House Oversight and Reform Committee, Cummings led investigations of President Trump's government governmental dealings, including probes this year relating to Trump's family members serving in the White House. His widow, Maya Rocky Moore Cummings, chairwoman of, the, of Maryland's Democratic Party, said in a statement, quote, He worked until his last breath because he believed our democracy was the highest and best expression of our collective humanity and that our nation's diversity was our promise, not our problem, end quote. A senior U.S. delegation arrived in Ankara today in an attempt to persuade Turkish President Erdogan to call for a ceasefire with the Kurdish forces in northern Syria. The delegation includes Vice President Mike Pence, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and White House National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien. Pence met with Erdogan in a brief one-on-one meeting, and a second meeting with full delegations from both sides is still planned. The U.S. delegation's visit came just hours after Trump declared that the U.S. had no stake in defending Kurdish fighters who died by the thousands as America's partners against ISIS extremists. Kurdish commander Maslum Abdi said today that President Trump had okayed the deal struck with Syrian and Russian forces to protect protect Kurds from the Turkish offensive. The commander's comments underscored Trump's willingness to see a crucial U.S. ally in the fight against ISIS switch allegiance to Moscow and Damascus. Trump said yesterday he welcomed the move by the two militaries to fill the void created when he ordered the pullout of U.S. forces. And senior House Democrats walked out of a contentious White House meeting on Syria yesterday, during which Trump called Pelosi a, quote, third-grade politician, and Pelosi accused Trump of having a meltdown. The White House had called the meeting after a bipartisan House vote, 354 to 60, to oppose Trump's troop withdrawal from Syria. In the meeting, Trump dismissed former Defense Secretary James Mattis as, quote, the world's most overrated general, and went on to claim, quote, I captured ISIS. The conversation devolved after Trump claimed to hate ISIS more than the Democrats, with House leaders walking out after Trump's third-grade diss. After they left, Trump said, quote, Goodbye, we'll see you at the polls, end quote. Yes, Mr. President, we will. U.S. Ambassador to the European Union Gordon Sundland is testifying in the House of Representatives behind closed doors today. He is expected to tell impeachment investigators that he was disappointed Trump directed him to work with his personal lawyer Giuliani on Ukraine policy. In prepared remarks obtained by the Associated Press, Sundland aimed to distance himself from any effort by Trump or Giuliani to have a political rival investigated. But Sundland's pivotal role in the dialogue, including discussions about a quid pro quo in exchange in which Ukraine's leader would get a coveted White House visit in exchange for satisfying Trump's uh, corruption related investigations, may make Sundland's assertions tough for U.S. for House Democrats to accept. And Brexit and the European Union finally reached a tentative Brexit deal today, signaling a potential end to the bitter three-year divorce battle. Only hours before Brussels hosted a summit on the bloc's 
of the bloc's 28 national leaders, European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker tweeted the success. British Prime Minister Boris